you know, watching fear arising and a certain, you know, a sort of uh, trembling fear. And, you know, I've heard Ajahn Virudamo, um note that, you know, so sometimes say that, you know, fear is a primordial um, phenomena. And um, so is, is it, is it, do we just sort of say that that's rooted in the desire for survival? Is it as simple as that? Or well, to that sensation, do you think? Um, this is a great question and very worthy for, for investigation. Um, so I'll just a couple of thoughts come to mind and all so we'll see what comes out of it. So as, as Ajahn, as Lumpur has pointed out, uh, Lumpur Viridham has pointed out, uh, the experience of being afraid of, of uh, having fear leap up into your heart um, is built into our biology, just like hunger or thirst, uh, uh, or sexual desire, these things are just part of having a human body. You can't get one of these without having that phenomena manifest itself. But notice the difference between the experience that we're labeling fear and the label itself. In other words, um, our minds are, our minds primarily function in terms of concepts. So when we're, um, when we're experiencing fear, we, we tend to think in terms of me and my, what it is that I'm afraid of. Uh, and, you know, oh, I hate being afraid. I don't like this sensation of fear. Maybe it causes you anger. You feel, you know, like there might be other emotions that pile on with that fear. Uh, the fear might remind you of other fears that you felt. But the point is, is that there's a lot of mental activity that happens, but the mental activity is not necessarily built into the biology. But the, like if... Um, you know, you're, you're shuffling across the carpet in the morning on your way to the, to the bathroom and some small creature walks across your foot, right? It's going to startle you, right? Um, you'll, there'll be this fear reaction. And that fear reaction is going to have a sense of, uh, like sort of shock, uh, a strong sense of uh, sudden pressure wave going through. Uh, maybe the chest will feel tight, the throat will feel tight. Um, a, a sense of hair standing up on the back of the, the neck. These are all uh, just experiences. Right? They're not, um, they don't have a label until we give them one. Right? But when we, when we call them fear, the, the tendency for it is to sort of concretize. We start taking the concept for the, for the experience itself. And I, I think that what the Buddha is pointing to when he says all phenomena are rooted in desire is our tendency to conceptualize or to, to um, narrate or to um, have a, uh, something mental to say about this natural experience of fear. As soon as the mouse runs across your foot and it's gone, the fear goes too, right? That's it. But, but our, or as soon as the, um, the contact stops, the, the experience drops away. So, so um, you know, if, you're, if you were an Alzheimer's patient, 
as soon as I tell you a joke, you laugh, and then you forget the joke I just told you, and I could tell it to you again, you'd laugh again. Right? It's, our, it's our ability to remember and to conceptualize about experiences that create the phenomenon of, oh, there's a problem, there's a mouse in the house, it scared the crap out of me when it ran across my foot, and uh, I better get some traps, or, geez, no, I'm not allowed to kill mice. So the mind just goes on and on and on, and starts, starts generating a whole world over this, this one sensory contact that generated a fear reaction. So when we notice that the, um, uh, there is sensory contact and then there's the natural reaction that comes about because of that, um, that's part of the equation. You could label that phenomenon and then see how the fact that you have a human body is rooted in the desire of the mind to have a human existence. Okay, maybe, that's, maybe that satisfies you, maybe it doesn't. But if you start seeing that, that what we're calling phenomena is of a conceptual nature. In other words, uh, Buddha didn't use the word things, but he used the, he used the concept phenomena. All things that we can identify um, are rooted in our ability to identify. And our ability to, to identify is very closely tied with uh, experience, with memory, with uh, this faculty called perception. And um, our training in that, all of our conditioning in those aspects of the mind are rooted in various kinds of desire. Uh, the desire to please others, the desire to uh, learn something new, the desire to know what the hell is going on, the desire to master uh, concepts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of our education, all of our training fills the mind with all these different concepts. And some of the concepts have a, a, a very strong emotional valence to them. And some of them are purely conceptual and mental, but they all, they all still qualify as concepts because they're being mentally represented rather than, than sense door represented. So when you think of something, like say um, uh, someone tells you about riots in Portland, you had a bad experience with, with, with uh, uh, a crowd of people starting to get sort of angry and violent. And so the, just hearing about riots in Portland and the, the sense of civil unrest that that, that, that implies um, causes you to tighten up and feel some fear, some anxiety about the future, right? So the, the fear that you're feeling is coming from the pure mental contact of the words and concepts coming out of that other person's mouth and your ability to understand what they're saying. It's not the same as the mouse running across your foot in the sense that it's not coming in through, through bodily contact. It's purely mental contact that's generating that kind of fear. So fear that's based on memories, on concepts, on... Um, uh, it's kind of anything other than just sort of direct confrontation with sensory uh, phenomena, that kind of fear is of a mental nature and it tends to get only propagated by more mental activity. So the mental activity itself doesn't happen unless part of the mind wants it to. It's like there's a motivation to react and the motivation is fundamentally rooted in desire. So this is what we have to look for and we have to see. Um, and you, you have to be willing to sit with it for a while and look carefully over and over again to see if you really understand what the Buddha even means by this word desire. Right? I was talking about how it has both a negative and a positive uh, valence to it. I think the desire to get rid of, a desire to get. So uh, a, a desire that's driving fear, when fear is being driven 
is being uh, triggered over and over again by desire, part of that desire is, is the desire of self-grasping. Like we grasp at ourselves. We want ourselves to be safe. And that desire is part of what's behind this, this, this uh, a, a habit of fear. Every one of us has a psychology. Buddhism classifies our psychologies into three kinds uh, as our primary, uh, our, 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 our strong point, if you will. So um, human psychologies are greed-based, aversion-based, and delusion-based. Now, we all have all three, but we tend to specialize in one or another. So if you're a, an aversive type, then you're going to experience aversion as a kind of a natural, typical reaction to what the world presents you with. If you're a greed type, then, of course, you know how that's going to feel. Um, we all know what greed feels like. We all know what aversion feels like. Then we all have experiences with delusion, which we often don't even recognize because that's the nature of delusion not knowing what's going on. So when um, we're acting from our personalities, from our psyches, from our egos, um, there's almost always, there's invariably the case that there's some kind of desire around grasping at the self, grasping at the me, my security, my safety, my needs, my fulfillment, my me, 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 right? So it's all about me um, for the most part. And that's, where, that's the phenomenon that the Buddha's pointing at is this phenomenon as it relates to the self, to the I, to the ego. We label something as a, as a thing, as a phenomenon. As soon as we do that, we put a concept on something, we reify the world into me and the thing I know. Right? It creates this duality of, of observer and observed. And that reification, that, that imposing of a, of a schema, upon our experiences is the arising of phenomena and it's driven by desire. So, so it's not to, to downplay the reality of fear or the, the maybe you should do something about your fear. That's not really the point of this teaching. It's simply to educate the mind on the nature of all phenomena so that you understand it more completely. When you understand it more completely, then you're, you're leading yourself step by step towards the freedom from being driven by desire. And so then fears, fear of it still gets naturally triggered by either mental events or physical events um, becomes much less problematic. It doesn't necessarily somehow vanish because you still have a human body and you're still subject to its natural reactions. But what the mind does with fear can be radically altered so that even though you might be an aversive type um, and you still retain your personality even if you become fully enlightened, um, there's no suffering in it. So fear can come and go, and it's, it's like clouds in the sky. It just comes and goes. So this, this is what the, the training is teaching us, is to see things in this objective way. And the, the teachings that he's giving us, like uh, all things are rooted in desire, or all phenomena are rooted in desire, is a pointer for us to, to look and try to see whether it's true, and then ask the question uh, about, the things that are most important to us in our lives, like the things that cause us the most uh, mental activity. Uh, you know, is it how much, how much mental, how much of our mental activity is rooted in desire? Because we live most of our minds, most of our lives in constant mental activity. There's a lot of desire there. Seeing that that, that is being driven by desire 
changes the equation a little bit. And so that's part of the reason that we study it. I hope that helps. Thank you. Would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? I'm looking for Manuel in my gallery. Right. Uh, ah, there you are. Thank you. Uh, I, I tend to think of desire in good and bad and uh, or wholesome and unwholesome or Chanda and Tanha. Okay. Yeah, those are all, those are all kind of related. Yeah. Were, were you mostly talking about one of those two or, or, or were you talking, it seemed that you were talking a more neutral one. It's neither good nor bad. It's just there, just a, a rock or a stone. It's neither good nor bad until you do something with it, right? Mm -hmm. can, you, can you help me here a bit? Yeah, maybe I can. Uh, I'm not. I'm not totally sure I understand your question, Manuel. But I'll. I'll, I'll I, what I think I heard was something like, um, "Can you maybe distinguish the difference between uh, this desire that the Buddha is talking about, in which all phenomena are rooted, and um, uh, tanha, which is uh, thirst?" Uh, yeah, and, I, I, and Chanda, which is this kind of skillful desire. Right. I tend to think of the good desire, desire to be, uh, to, to, to grow, the desire to be nice to people, the desire yeah. to, and the bad desire, which is the desire to pick out an ice cream. Okay. So those, are, those are the two different desires, right? No? Sure. Well, what you can, what, you know, this is one of the great, one of my favorite teachings of the Buddha is that um, all mental activity could be classified into one of two categories wholesome or unwholesome, right? If you actually examine your thoughts, you'll see that um, some impulses, some thoughts, some inclinations are uh, of a wholesome nature, you know, thoughts of generosity, thoughts of giving, thoughts of, of uh, renunciation, etc. These are all wholesome thoughts. And then there's a thoughts that are not that, they're that are, you know, thoughts of, of harming, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of, of uh, greed, so, and etc. that, um, are more unwholesome. Now, even thoughts that are that are pretty neutral in a in a kind of a sociological or a personal sense, like the thoughts of becoming you know, becoming an architect or becoming a doctor, um, we wouldn't think of them conventionally as being unwholesome. But um, uh, part of it has to do with the, the motivation that's behind it. Like if you if you want to become uh, a lawyer so that you can get rich off of, by chasing ambulances. That's one kind of motivation. If you want to become a lawyer in order to be, to, um, you know, uh, represent um, uh, uh, discriminated against clients in court uh, for free as a form of generosity, then it's being motivated by generosity. And so it's, it could count as a wholesome desire. But um, whenever there's a desire around the self that has to do with any kind of becoming, you know, taking on an identity, being, seen a certain way in the world almost certainly has some kind of greed or grasping in it. And so oftentimes our, our, um, our thoughts and our motivations can have this kind of black and white mixture. You know, they can get kind of complicated and have more than just one pure note going on in them. And so this, this ability to be able to classify thoughts as either being wholesome or unwholesome, the only way to really know is to stick with it for a while and to 
uh, spend time kind of unpacking the roots of that thought to see if they're really the roots of it are, are completely wholesome or not. So um, it's not an easy, it's not an instantaneous or uh, easy task. And I would say that the Buddha's advice or the Buddha's um, observation or this teaching that all phenomena are rooted in desire is like a, a, a suggestion to the practitioner who has a mind that's inclined to find that an intriguing idea and want to investigate it. So, you know, like the Buddha says a lot of things about a lot of different aspects of our experience, about a lot of different things about human existence. Um, and almost all of them can be taken as a teaching that can be investigated in order to arouse knowledge and vision of the way things are. So you know, the suttas are full of meditation instruction. It's just couched as Dhamma teachings, right? But everything that's a Dhamma teaching, if you take it as a meditation instruction, you use it for reflection, for contemplation, for investigation. So you can find out for yourself what the truth is of it. So this teaching about desire is of, is of that nature. Um, it's not meant to be like a clarification of the difference between wholesome and unwholesome desires. It's more, um, it's kind of broadening the scope of, um, or, or maybe offering an alternative scope of your own uh, uh, Dhamma investigation to see how it is that this is true or to, to the extent which it's true. Or, or maybe you can see that it's partially true in some areas, but maybe other areas doesn't seem like it's true, but it, it, can, it can lead you on and on if you find it an intriguing question. So you can see that, yes, wholesome desires are still desires. Unwholesome desires are still desires. Some desires seem to be kind of neutral, but they're still desires. So we don't need, you know, when he talks about all phenomena are rooted in desire, in a way, the, the consideration whether they're unwholesome or wholesome takes like a back seat. It's not really the, the main point of the teaching. The main point of the teaching is, is to see that there's no exceptions. I mean, that's eventually what you come to if you really dig into it. You'll see that wholesome or unwholesome, a strong or weak, past or future, uh, refined or crude, all phenomena is rooted in desire somehow or other, right? And then again, that teaching leads to the understanding that the things that we take to be real and certain and true and permanent that have to do with the self, they just aren't. Right? They're, they're, of a, they're of a different nature. So this is a way to arrive at that knowledge and vision of the way things are. Uh, it, you use the, um, the question of, are, is it true? Are all things rooted in desire? Are all phenomena rooted in desire? Can I verify that for myself? If you take that as your vehicle, it could, it could potentially take you all the way, take you a long way down the path towards liberation. Um, you know, if you, if you really pay attention to what's happening in your mind to see whether or not it's motivated by desire, you're just naturally going to see that phenomena arise and pass away and that there's no satisfaction in them. So it's going to just show you the same things. Um, and you'll see that how desire affects everything, how it colors everything, how it makes something which is nothing into a something. Uh, it doesn't have an identity until the mind wants it to have an identity and then it becomes something. So, so there's this very, very subtle desire that's even behind perception that you can see if you stick with the question long enough and you get to see it for yourself, how 
when the mind doesn't want anything, when there's no desire, uh, there's no world. Right? So the world comes into being because of desire. But the world that he's talking about is not the world of external people, places, and things. It's the, the mental world that we inhabit. The mental world is formed out of desire. And so when we, when we stop forming it, even for a second, we see, oh, it's, it's optional. Like, it, it, like it's, the mind's just doing this thing where it creates this world that, I, that I'm in, and I have to suffer in that world. So uh, this is a, a teaching that's pointing the way, uh, pointing a way to uh, open up the Dhamma for yourself. And so I bring it up because it can work for some people. Not everybody's going to be intrigued by this, this possibility that, you know, it sounds crazy. Every, all phenomena are rooted in desire. I'm going to find out for myself. I mean, that's, that's the inspiration that the Buddha is trying to arouse in the people who, 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 whose mind gets, gets uh, kind of tuned into that particular teaching. It's not for everybody, though. It's like, the, it's like any one of his teachings um, – potentially could work for some people and not others. I, I often had this reaction to the, the teaching on the four elements. You know, he talks about the four elements a fair bit in the suttas. And I just, I, you know, I hated that <laughs> for many years. I could, couldn't understand what he was talking about. And whenever I'd hear about it, I'd just tune it out because I, I just thought it was some medieval, pre-scientific pre nonsense about chemistry that they didn't understand how things worked. Um, but eventually I came around to it, and that's why I was teaching it tonight in the, in the, uh, the guided meditation. Um, it's, just a, it's just another way of framing experience for the possibility of investigation that leads to uh, a deeper understanding of what liberation is, what awakening is. So I hope that helps. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate your um, your um, sutta rooted. Um, my question is, could I substitute the word conditioning for phenomena? Mm. I think that might might be like a uh, an interesting way to approach the investigation. Um, all conditioning is rooted in desire, but I. Um, my sense is that it will, it will quickly run into um, my desire versus other desire. Like, like you'll see that some conditioning is imposed on you more or less against your will by the desires of others. Right? Like, like people want you to behave in a certain way, and so they condition you in a certain way. Um, and so the, the fact that you get conditioned isn't really under your control, and you might desire it to be differently, or you might eventually decide it's, it's a good thing and you grab onto it. Um, but this, the, the, the term conditioning is um, maybe a little too exclusive, or, or maybe not quite as inclusive as the notion of phenomena, right? Um, as I was mentioning to Manuel, when the Buddha, there's this great teaching where the Buddha talks about the world. Like he says, a, a David comes to him and says, you know, Bhante, is it possible to arrive at the end of the world by traveling? You know, because this, this deva can travel apparently at the speed of light. Right? You're sure you've heard this one, right? So, and then of course the Buddha says, no, it's not possible to get to arrive at the end of the world uh, by traveling. 
Um, and yet, unless one arrives at the end of the world, one doesn't complete the training, right? So our training is to arrive at the end of the world. What world is he talking about? Of course, he's talking about this world here, right? The, the personal world that we all inhabit. Um, he says the, the world and the origin of the world and the escape from the world is all to be found within this, this fathom-long corpse. So um, we don't have to look very far. We just have to keep looking in, internally at what's happening in our minds. As an annex to that question, then, because I've been working with the words of the unconditioned, mm. you know, that the craft is the unconditioned in a way. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess conditioning um, maybe oh, okay. not be the, maybe. So that's the well, way that, that that's that it depends on again how you're maybe interpreting the word conditioned. If you're setting it up in contrast to the unconditioned, you can see that the entire world is conditioned, right? So rather than saying all all conditioning is rooted in desire, you might say that instead all phenomena is rooted in conditioning. Oh. Right? Okay. Yeah. That's, and then the second question, okay, all phenomena is rooted in conditioning. Okay. Um, second part to it would be, what is the practice that you have found to help clear the perception of, of all conditioning, all mm. phenomena, of all the phenomena and conditioning? What is the practice that for, for clearing those doors of perception, the dusty moats? Yeah. Well, it's... Um it's a little complicated, <laughs> um, but I, I think it's uh, I, I, what I've what I've observed in in practitioners is um, uh, I like everybody else you know started off with um, a teacher showing me how to do uh, uh, meditation of a mindfulness of breathing meditation right so a lot of people start off with mindfulness of breathing. Um, but there's lots of other practices. You could be you could be taught how to do metta meditation. Um, you could be studying with a jhana master who really gets into various concentration states. Um, I tried a lot of different things. I mean, I tried. I spent time a lot of time doing metta meditation. Uh, I actually practiced um, with a, a bunch of different teachers doing a bunch of different things. Um, and I would stick with with certain teachings for. Uh, kind of as long as they were fruitful for me. And then they'd kind of peter out and then I'd have to try something else. So I think this is a, a normal course of events with, with uh, meditation practice. Um, probably the thing that's done the most, uh, maybe the, the thing that was the most surprising was the power of contemplation versus the power of tranquility style meditation. So, um, if you if you do a tranquility style of meditation where you're following the breathing and you're trying to get the mind to be very very still, maybe you're trying to to, to enter jhana states. Um, that has that has power and it's very important to get some skill at being able to do that. And there's lots of doorways to tranquility. Like metta can be a doorway to tranquility. All the Brahma Viharas can. Um, there's even uh, things that I've tried like casinos that didn't work for me, but apparently they work for some people. So there's, there's traditionally there's said to be 40 meditation practices that the Buddha teaches and they all will develop some degree of tranquility. So when you, tr- but 
I've also found that almost every meditation technique, with maybe the exception of meditation of breathing, there's a, a, a limit to how many times you can go to the well before the well runs dry. And then you have to leave it alone for a while and come back to it later. So, um, I, you know, this is something you discover about your own mind. You find out what works for you um, and how reliable it is and when you need to let it go and come back to it again later. So, uh, so eventually we all become our own meditation teacher. And that's part of what we have to do. So it's the contemplation of, of that process as, as well. Yes, exactly. How is it, how is it that this mind works? You know, what, did, what does it respond to? Yeah. Thank you. Wonderful. Welcome. Thank you so much. All right. Well, do you have time for one more question? Or? I do. If there's another question, I, I feel I have time. If you're all up for it. Okay. I see. Would you like to unmute yourself? Yeah, thank you. Ah, ah, so ah. Hi. <laughs> I want to. Um, I'm going to first um, paraphrase, trying to paraphrase that what you said to just check in that my understanding of what you were saying is correct. And then I have, and there's a, there's a disconnection for me that I don't know, maybe I don't. Okay. So the way I feel you're talking, um, you're saying that whenever perception happens, is the participation, the desire to participate in that perception, whatever that you're perceiving that give rise to self and then gets basically connected to desire. So if something is happening and if, if I just uh, perceive that stimulus without really participating in making any meaning out of it, then there is no, um, I wouldn't be basically taken up or hijacked by, by whatever is the experience and I can just observe it. Is that right? Mm, I, th I think there's a, um, uh, I'm hearing an echo and it's, it's making me lose my train of thought. <laughs> but um, when, when the mind is truly not participating in phenomena, there isn't any phenomena. Right? So or there's nothing that can be labeled. There's nothing that can be uh, grasped at. There isn't, there's, there's no grasper. There's no graspability. So this, um, this is, a, you could say, a very radical non-participation. Um, we, we, we as practitioners, we're, we're, we're bound to get some degrees, like there's degrees to this, right? So we'll get some sense of how, how deeply embedded and how enmeshed we are with our own experience, and how we're constantly manipulating it, trying to get goodies out of it or trying to get rid of parts of it or it's, so, so, so we can see that the more that we let go of our experience and just let it be what it is, the more peaceful it is and the kind of the less complicated it is. And so we're, when we're doing that, and we do that in meditation in a formal kind of a way, but when we're doing that, we're, we're getting a taste of what it is the Buddha is talking about when he talks about liberation, uh, when he talks about awakening. So what we awaken to is... The, the, the possibility of not participating in the creation of a world with a self in it that 
experiences, phenomena that need to be investigated in order to understand that world. So, but that participation, that ability to not participate um, requires that we see what the mechanism of participation is. Right? Until we know what the mechanism is, we can't really opt out. Right? So we're, we're, we're signed up in a very deep way and we have to understand how it is that we've signed up. And, the, and then we can see the possibility of trying the alternative. So um, it, it's important to, to not um, uh, maybe not presume that the ability to simply disentangle from an emotional storyline or a personal storyline about things that are happening in your life to be able to sort of be relaxed and kind of that's not the same thing as what the Buddha is pointing to. That's, that's part of the path, but it's really not the end of the path. There's more to do. Okay, so I, ho I hope I addressed your question. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, so thank you for that. Yes, so I, I feel like I, I was able to connect to what you're saying. Um, so this is where I, I, I struggle to connect it to this, this, what I'm going to tell you about. And it may not be, it may not be appropriate to make that connection. But when someone, for instance, being um, traumatized with, um, let's say they were in war zone and now they get triggered by firework, right? And that moment, everything seems so real for that person, right? So is there any way that we can translate what you are saying um, into a more sort of tangible way for a person in that situation to get some comfort from mm -hmm. the teaching? Well, I, I think so, right? I think that anybody, even someone with, with pretty severe PTSD um, or physical injuries or childhood trauma or, you know, um, there, there's, but there's a limit to what can be done without being able to do deep meditation practice. Uh, so, there, so I maybe put that as, as a cautionary word, right? Someone who's got multiple personality disorder probably shouldn't be trying to get into jhanas because it'll just take them into some form of dissociation, right? They're, they're, you need to have like a, a pretty well integrated uh, ego in order to transcend the, that ego, right? So someone who's got various degrees of severity of mental illness, um, trying to do meditation practice could just be a, a way of escaping their situation rather than seeing deeply into it, right? So I would say that for someone who's got um, maybe PTSD, what the practice is offering is a way of um, soothing and calming and uh, uh, creating an alternative narrative about their life. So, so for per people like that, um, the key is to do uh, um, the five precepts, practices of generosity, and to build, you could say, like an identity around um, wholesome aspects, right? Because as long as there's um, uh, disruptive trauma that keeps interrupting the mind, um, th that disruptive trauma, trauma tends to put the mind back into its most negative ideation about itself, right? And so consciously taking on wholesome practices and actually undertaking them and, and physically doing them builds a new timeline you know, that, that can start to displace this, this one that will only get reinforced over and over again. 
So you actually need to do something that the Buddha calls, use, calls this uh, what a carpenter does. You know, a carpenter, when he wants to get, um, build a piece of furniture, take a piece of furniture apart, he uses a, a small peg to drive out a big peg. Right? So you can, you, can, you can disassemble something by substituting something more refined for something which is kind of coarse. It's a, it's a tedious and, and drawn-out process, but it definitely bears results very quickly. You know, it doesn't bear final results for, for quite a while, but for someone who's suffering a lot, um, you know, I've seen this happen where just, just the act of caring for an animal, just feeding a dog, petting the dog, you know, taking the dog for a walk, can give them some relief. Yeah. And that's, that's often the first thing that we need to do for someone who's suffering a lot is offer them some kind of relief. And so I would say, um, you know, physical and mental engagement and wholesome practices leads in that direction. And then once they, they've, they've um, recuperated enough that they can maybe start taking on the more uh, rigorous mental training, then, you know, when they're ready for it, then that would be appropriate. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. You're